and welcome to the New Mexico Autism Project podcast for educators. These podcasts, as well as our online training series, have been developed by the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department as a resource for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices for working with students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. We hope that you enjoy this series, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district through the NMPED Autism Project, please contact me, Patrick Blevins, at the email address shown on the slide, or call the UNM CDD at 505-272-3000. Welcome to this series of podcasts for educators sponsored for you by the New Mexico Public Education Department. I'm Mary Ann Trott, and I will host this series of podcasts intended for educators working primarily with students with autism spectrum disorders. Our first topic is reinforcement. Reinforcement is a consequence, meaning what follows a specific behavior that increases the likelihood that the behavior will happen again. It sounds pretty straightforward but it's important to make sure that what we reinforce are behaviors that will benefit our students and that the way we reinforce increases independence and generalization. My guests discussing this topic are Travis Quintana and Russell Smith. Both Travis and Russell have worked for several years with students significantly impacted by autism and in many cases, other special education eligibilities. We've had a lot of discussions and a lot of problem-solving sessions about some of the issues of reinforcement. So we'll start off with Travis. Uh, Travis, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, Travis Quintana. I'm uh, currently in my third chain, uh, currently at the Highland Complex in Albuquerque Public Schools. Um, this is a facility that um, services learners who exhibit a severe problem here that is uh, sort of too intense at the moment to be treated safely in their neighborhood schools. So we often work with um, concepts of of reinforcement and um, obviously a bunch of interrelated things to help fit our learners and get them back amongst others. Okay, great. Thanks, Travis. Uh, Russell, would you introduce yourself as well before we get started? Sure. Um, my name is Russell Smith. Um, I also work at the Highland Complex. I've been here since we opened about 12 years ago almost. And yeah, that's Travis explained it well. Okay. So um, the first question is Travis is going to handle this one. Uh, Travis, could you clarify for us the difference between a reward and a reinforcer? and give us an example of how you use both of those things in your work in the classroom. Absolutely, Marianne, I would be happy to do that. Um, I'll start by defining a reinforcer first and then we'll go into a reward. Uh, So the concept of reinforcement is fundamental to the efforts of benefiting uh, the lot of individuals with autism spectrum disorders uh, in classroom settings. Both uh, concepts of positive and negative reinforcement exist, but for the purpose of this discussion, uh, I will, uh, I mean, this discussion of reinforcer reward, I will focus exclusively on the idea of positive reinforcement and how it can be confused with the concept of reward, uh, again, within the classroom setting specifically. Um, so is positive reinforcement. 
to further elaborate what you have already stated, Marianne, it is the act of providing something contingent that is reliant upon a behavior happening in order to increase the likelihood of that behavior to happen more in the future. Um, so I thought we could break this down with a classroom example that's, you know, very common in my teaching practice. Um, let's say I've selected a specific behavior for students that uh, currently rarely occurs, uh, but I would like to see that behavior occur more often. Um, the student is working on, let's say, developing a bigger sight word repertoire and currently only reads a few words correctly when presented with the words during a lesson. Uh, I would like to help that student read more sight words correctly uh, during lessons in the future, which is where reinforcers and uh, positive reinforcement is going to come into that. Um, so while I'm building that skill um, of sight word reading with the student, I will provide something contingent, right, reliant upon uh, the correct reading of a sight word. Uh, so in other words, after each occurrence of this correctly reading that sight word, I will immediately provide something to the student that I have determined to be reinforcing. Uh, so the more that I consistently provide this reinforcer after the student correctly reads a word, uh, the more likely it is that the student will read more sight words correctly um, in future lessons. Uh, so now that we've kind of described the basic flow of positive reinforcement, let's uh, go into the idea of what a reinforcer is. Um, I like to think a, a good way of thinking about a reinforcer <clears throat> is that it is always something that an individual likes in their environment. Um, when access to this preferred, pardon me, preferred thing, whatever it is, is made contingent on a specific behavior occurring, uh, an individual will change their current pattern of behavior to gain access to that preferred thing as a result. Um, we all have reinforcers in our lives uh, that we displace behavior for in order to gain access to. Uh, some really common ones, for example, answering the phone when a friend calls, allowing oneself to eat a donut or maybe two donuts after a workout at the gym. Um, there, may, pardon me, there are many things that can be done to figure out what a dual prefers and in turn what might function as a specific reinforcer. Um, these are typically called preference assessments, and I'm not going to go deep into that because they will be the subject of a subsequent episode in this podcast series. Um, so in my classroom, I try to run one of these preference assessments about once a month or even more often if I think it may have a better, uh, a greater benefit to my students. Pardon me. Um, a good thing to always keep in mind is what a student prefers right now may not be preferred uh, by that student a week from now. Um, so it's always kind of changing. Uh, for myself as a teacher to be able to responsibly call something that a student prefers a reinforcer, I need to be paying very close attention to how it affects a behavior of focus. Uh, such as the sight word example previously mentioned. Um, if through data collection and close observation over time, I think my student is engaging in the behavior of focus more often as I make access to that preferred thing, contingent or reliant upon, right, the correct demonstration of that behavior, I can be confident that it is probably a reinforcer. Uh, for a current example, um, effective reinforcers in my classroom at the moment include edible items such as M&Ms and popcorn, those are big, and uh, specific positive social interactions with one of my students. And that's currently in the form right now of a socially distanced high five. Um, so when I deliver a reinforcer after a specific behavior happens, I also typically briefly and specifically tell the student why they are receiving the reinforcement. Uh, this helps to clarify to my student exactly what is expected of them and what behavior they're, they're, they're needing to perform which will hopefully help foster that behavior to occur more um, in, in the future. 
Um, the exception to this rule um, is if positive behavior specific praise in general is not preferred by that student, um, in which case the delivery of the reinforcer will absolutely suffice. Um, I'm also careful to provide reinforcement immediately after the behavior occurs. Typically this occurs within a few seconds, but it can be pushed to a maximum of about maybe 30 seconds to ensure that the item is uh, indeed functioning as a reinforcer for that specific behavior. Um, if I wait too long, the student may not connect the two events in a way that will function as reinforcement. Um, so an example of a skill that I'm focusing on in my classroom currently uh, is teaching my students to wash their hands for 20 seconds at a time. Uh, when we were going through steps of washing hands, which my students have mostly mastered, uh, I use a visual timer to show my students how long they need to be scrubbing and rinsing their hands at the sink for that specific step in the routine. Uh, when a student performs this behavior independently for the full 20 seconds, then and only then do they get access to the reinforcer. Uh, by providing reinforcement to my students focused on this behavior and making sure that it will happen more often and hopefully maintain over time within their hand washing routine. Um, okay, so so uh, let, me, let me interrupt you for just a second, Travis. So uh, sure. for the hand washing, do you also use um, edibles? Uh, it depends. Typically, no, uh, because we've just washed our hands. Um, it might be uh, a preferred tangible item, um, such as like a um, one of my students really likes a squishy ball. Um, uh, yeah, that's an example. Um, okay. But we, and, we might want to. And sometimes, it. sometimes uh, like before lunch, you know, uh, lunch would be the por perfect reinforcement for washing your hands. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And while right now we don't have lunch at school, uh, my students certainly wash their hands right before we eat breakfast every day. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, all right. So that was a lot on reinforcement. And uh, so now we've got a clear picture uh, of how reinforcers function in a classroom setting. Uh, let's move on to how this differs from a reward. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I like to think of reinforcement being focused only on a behavior and a reward more being focused on the student or the class as a whole. Um, so when I finish a literacy unit with my students, for example, uh, they'll get like a pizza party at the end of the day on a Friday. Um, while we finished a unit that the students worked hard on and I am rewarding the students for their efforts over a long period of time, I'm not providing the pizza party contingent on a specific behavior. Um, the literacy unit takes time and a multitude of behaviors to complete. Um, if we think about the two things sort of coexisting within this example, um, we can think of reinforcers being embedded into the literacy unit at a more zoomed in scale to help foster that specific skill growth, such as correctly reading sight words at a higher rate over time. And I will provide a reward at a more zoomed out scale um, at the end of the unit to show my students that I'm appreciative of their overall efforts as individuals in my classroom. Um, so now that we've sort of said that, it, it, it can be a bit tricky to tease out the differences between reinforcers and rewards. Um, a quick summary. I guess, is that I am not providing a reward immediately after a behavior occurs, and I am not waiting until the end of a comprehensive unit to reinforce my students. So a reward can create a more positive learning environment, uh, but it does not have the rigorous focus that reinforcers have for specific skill development over time. Good distinction. Thank you. All right. So um, and would you say you probably given that you individualize instruction for your students um, as we think about students with autism, uh, you probably do you use reinforcers a whole lot more than rewards? Absolutely. Yeah. Reinforcers are used every day throughout the day. 
um, in my classroom. Yeah. And, and while you use rewards, it's not actually um, absolutely essential that your students understand that they're being uh, rewarded for a specific behavior. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's more of a generalized thing. So so that's really important for uh, teachers to understand that uh, though, you know, kids may like stickers and stars and, you know, pizza parties or whatever, uh, those things are not necessarily going to uh, increase the likelihood that a specific behavior is going to increase. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they're not bad. Like I'm saying that I think it absolutely creates a more fun and positive classroom environment, but it's not so focused. Yeah. Yeah. And as you pointed out, we reinforce ourselves for some things. Uh, we also reward ourselves for some things, sometimes less appropriately than others, like the donuts after the workout. Certainly. Certainly. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Travis. Um, so, uh, Russell, we've talked a lot about how easy it is to inadvertently reinforce a behavior. And I know, you know, there have been some back and forth conversation about us with some of the behaviors in your classroom. Uh, so we inadvertently reinforce a behavior that we may not actually want to build. Uh, could you give me an example of how that might have happened in your classroom and also the things that you uh, try to be aware of uh, in order to prevent that from happening? And, uh, you know, I know that your students also uh, have autism, uh, which contributes to that um, difficulty with uh, not inadvertently building reinforcers. So if you could kind of talk about that a little bit, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, I first wanted to start with something that I struggled with um, when I was first learning behavioral concepts was positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. I just wanted to provide some really clear, simplistic examples. Um, so for positive reinforcement, um, a good example of this would be a teacher gives her student praise, which would be the reinforcing stimulus um, for doing homework, which would be the behavior. Um, another Easy example would be your child receives $5, which is the reinforcing stimulus, for every A he earns on his report card, which would be the behavior. The difference being um, with negative reinforcement, some examples would be the dishes are done, the behavior, and in order to stop nagging, which is an aversive stimulus. And, <laughs> Good one. Um, another, ex <laughs> another example it could be a, a child gets up for, from the dinner table adversive stimulus when he eats two bites of broccoli, which is the behavior. Um, or, you know, the common example, you press the button behavior the, that turns off a loud alarm, um, adversive stimulus. Um, overall, um, when thinking about reinforcement, I think it's important to remember that the end result should try to increase any behavior or the behavior. Um, so getting into, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, that was a really good example. So um, let's go back just a second to your uh, broccoli example. So yes. um, by allowing the child to leave the table after two bites of broccoli, that would be a negative reinforcer. Is that correct? Yeah, the way I'd set it up um, was is that the adversive stimulus. Um, and the adversive stimulus is what the kid doesn't like, right? Right. So, yep, I see. I guess I had set it up as the child getting up for dinner uh, from the dinner table after he eats two bites of broccoli. Yeah, perfect. 
So, so essentially, the, he escapes the bad thing, the broccoli, mm, right? Right. And, and that's the negative reinforcement. So the next time that he has broccoli on his plate, he's more likely to go ahead and eat the broccoli in order to be able to leave the dinner table. Yes. Great. That's a good, really good example. And I thank you for clearing up positive and negative reinforcement because people often uh, get those confused and think that negative reinforcement is something that it isn't. So uh, thank you for clarifying that for us. Absolutely. Okay. So um, when considering um, an inverted uh, reinforcement, I think it's first um, vital to know what motivates a student. Um, preference assessments, as Travis mentioned, are a good place to start. Also asking people um, who know the child best, such as parents, caregivers, siblings, um, and so on. If the, stu- if the student is not motivated, motivated by reinforcement, it is not increasing the likelihood of the behavior occurring in the future, possibly not increasing the behavior or increasing the likelihood. Uh, and that's um, a really good point too. That and kind of going back to what Travis was talking about about reinforcement assessments, you got to make sure your reinforcer is motivating. Right. Um, also, another important factor is identifying the function of the behavior. When ensure um, identifying the function of the behavior will ensure you are providing reinforcement for the behavior you wish to increase. Um, take for example the student who is acting out in class and he or she is kicked out of class or ignored. Uh, If the function of the behavior was to avoid being called on to read, then the maladaptive behavior is reinforced by both reactions of the teacher. Um, It's, it's, you know, I've I've found it remarkably easy to reinforce undesirable behaviors and also Uh, very difficult to recognize in the moment. Yes, it really Um, is. And so without um, reflecting on your teaching and having a tracking system, um, you know, reinforcing um, the, you know, inadvertently reinforcing can become a part of your practice, you know, your everyday practice without knowing. Um, So I've personally had difficulty with reinforcement as um, just because there's so many aspects to consider um, with reinforcement. Um, This can be as obvious as a student that repeatedly calls out the teacher's name from across the room and the teacher addresses the student, either in a positive manner or negative. If the function of the behavior is attention, the student yelling across the room is reinforced. Um, Or um, a student refuses to do work in class um, and misses out on recess. If social interaction is aversive to the student, then the behavior was reinforced. Okay, so uh, so, so um, Ed, let me let me uh, see if I I get this clearly. Sure. So even sure. if, if even if the teacher says, "Gee, you're you know not doing a good job, and I'm really disappointed in you, and all of that kind of stuff," uh, it's still attention, right? And so that is reinforcing to the student. Um, I, for that example, I was I was more um, kind of focusing on um, students that um, that maybe don't want to go or don't care about missing out on recess um, if not doing their homework or not doing their classwork is um, the behavior and they don't have to go to recess then that's you know something they may do more of is not doing classwork so they can do it during recess time i see so the teacher's intention is you stay in from recess and you'll learn to do your classwork next time right like recess that much anyway and i will stay in here with you that would be just great right yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Good examples. So, um, 
Reflecting on uh, an example from my classroom, um, I had a student that would um, swipe at teachers or staff that would come near her desk. Um, and we started teaching her to say, uh, to say, no, thank you, or I don't want that. But she was still continuing the swiping. Um, you know, looking at this, she was um, actually her workload was being decreased by either the verbal statements or swiping at teachers. So the behavior never really decreased. Um, when we reflected on some behavior data, we realized that just writing tasks were um, very difficult for her or something she didn't want to do. So we started providing um, choices. And, you know, something as simple as the color of marker or the writing utensil she was using, um, she would then engage in some writing. Um, also, we pro just provided many different formats. Um, so we would let her either verbally answer questions. She could use pictures to answer questions. Um, and so we just considered using different accommodations and modifications um, to her um, everyday, you know, whatever it was um, that we were learning in class, she could learn. Um, sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought. Yeah, I, I, I got it. I mean, you could, that she could inadvertent, I mean, that she could learn through different modalities and didn't always have to be writing uh, her answers or she could write with preferred things, right? Correct. Yeah. But, and, and the inadvertent reinforcement came in when, uh, she would, she would swipe at you, uh, or uh, staff members and then you would talk about, you know, what she could do instead. And that allowed her to escape the work exactly. that she was having a hard time doing. So, boy, that's really sneaky, which is the problem. Yeah. Okay, the great. Absolutely. Um, and, and another just example of uh, something that we've dealt with in our class is um, a student who was, uh, let's see, sorry, another student um, that was just saying very inappropriate things during the middle of lessons. Um, and I would react to that by saying, no, thank you. That's not appropriate for class. Or I would sit down and talk about what was appropriate. Well, after, um, you know, realizing uh, through an FBA that a vast majority of behaviors were due to attention, um, we started to ignore the inappropriate comments. And when he was being appropriate, give large amounts of positive attention to him. And we did see these inappropriate comments just drastically decrease. And now uh, his BIP doesn't even include um, inappropriate comments. So um, just by me wanting to have good intentions of that's not appropriate, or even just responding in the middle of the lesson, stopping a lesson to address that was inadvertently um, reinforcing what he was trying to get, which was attention. Boy, that's really hard to do, isn't it? Especially when a student is being inappropriate and you don't want the other kids to come. Things. That's great. Exactly. And another um, important thing that that brought up in my head, I mean, essentially, uh, would you say that what you did for those inappropriate comments was an extinction? Yes. Yes. And so absolutely. it really is important to know, as, as uh, you've both mentioned, it's important to know the function because you knew the function was to get attention. And so not providing that attention would allow for the extinction. Uh, whereas if he had been doing it to uh, get out of his work or something, um, that ignoring the comments wouldn't have done a bit of good. So right. um, you, you uh, took, took the data and understood 
that the ignoring of the inappropriate comments was uh, successful, that that did away with some of the inappropriate comments. Yes. It's a really good example. Yes. And lastly, just to be aware um, where I've really personally um, been able to be aware of when I'm inadvertently or reinforcing a behavior is really just being on the same page with my staff um, that we're all, if we're all on the same page, we're sort of all giving each other checks, balances. We um, have uh, either daily or weekly uh, meetings about students reflecting on BIPs, reflecting on their data, and that will that's really been where we can catch some increases in behavior and kind of see what we're doing, and that's really been uh, an area that we've worked to improve because we've seen the most improvement um, on just catching each other of, of possible inadvertent uh, reinforcement. That's great. And I appreciate the fact that you brought up the data collection because that really is what enables us to know. And uh, there will be another podcast on data collection. So I would really encourage our listeners uh, to to think about that one. And I just want uh, your thoughts on one more thing, Russell, that I know that we have talked about, particularly as this series of podcasts is directed toward um, primarily teachers who have kids with autism. And I, I know that we have talked about that um, maybe one one of the ways that we inadvertently reinforce some of their, um, you know, really focused behaviors, their perseverative behaviors, their um, inflexibility is by mm-hmm. really um, keeping that schedule just really super strict. Um, and I wonder, um, do you want, uh, do you remember, you know, our, some of our conversations about this? Yes. Yes. Uh, could you, could you um, reflect on that just a little bit? Sure. Um I've had a student, a couple students who are just very um, routinized in in their everyday schedule. And if something were to change, um, it caused a meltdown of all sorts. Um, so just by um, sticking to that schedule so rigidly um, and trying to be so routine within our everyday practice, um, that was sort of inadvertently reinforcing their, their routinized behaviors to have something so predictable throughout the day. And so we've, we've worked on changing up their schedules. Um, we have, uh, just regular routine. Um, let's get up, let's go for a stretch. Uh, you know, different types of things that'll break up the schedule so that every day does not look the same as the next. Yeah, and that's such an important thing to do, and it's so hard because we're taught over and over that, you know, routines and uh, schedules and all are really important for people with autism, but it also is important to reinforce their ability to be flexible in their routines, uh, especially for people with autism. So uh, thank you for uh, letting me throw that in. Absolutely. Um, so the, the last question I'd like for each of you to take some time to reflect on, uh, and if you would share a one caution and one piece of advice. So uh, Travis, we'll let uh, Russell take a, a little bit of a break, and if you'll start off with a, a caution and a piece of advice uh, regarding reinforcement. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, so I will start with a caution um, of reinforcement. Um, why don't we go back to uh, my earlier example, uh, which has been kind of a current thing in my classroom of my students uh, being taught to wash their hands for 20 seconds at a time um, independently. 
Um, upon the initial teaching of this skill, in order for my students to perform the skill correctly, they would need uh, hand-over-hand guidance to uh, be able to keep scrubbing and rinsing for 20 seconds. Uh, while this obviously does result in the goal of having clean hands, uh, my students were requiring significant help and could not perform the skill independently for that long. And as we know that independence is, is absolutely the most important thing uh, that we can teach our students with skills. Um, so uh, noticing that that was the case, I, I took a probe um, of how long one of my students could independently perform hand washing uh, when given the direction, now scrub and rinse your hands. Um, and it was about five seconds. So we're just looking at that one step of the entire uh, hand washing routine. Um, this showed me that I could begin reinforcing my student for independently washing their hands for a duration of five seconds. Uh, this would ensure that they would receive frequent reinforcement. Um, this probe provided an insight for me to see sort of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Um, and to clarify further, you know, I, I found where my student was in terms of this independent skill development in a way that I could immediately begin reinforcing um, this skill during hand washing sessions. Um, over time and gradually, I increased how long he needed to wash his hands in order to receive a reinforcer. Um, this was stated specifically to the student each time we increased the duration requirement, uh, which was two seconds at a time. So we would go from five seconds to seven seconds to nine seconds, et cetera. And this was also displayed with the visual timer, uh, which I believe I mentioned earlier too. Um, his behavior was slowly changed over time using positive reinforcement as the mechanism uh, with which to help drive that. Um, once we reached 20 seconds of independent hand washing, uh, again, over time and gradually, this, that, that's very important, um, I began to reinforce him less often. Uh, that is, uh, not after each and every occurrence of the behavior happening. Um, this process is effectively stretching out the amount of reinforcement the student receives so that over time they need less and less reinforcement reinforcement, pardon me, to maintain that skill. And uh, to touch back on what you had mentioned uh, a little while ago too, Marianne, the, um, you know, we want the reinforcement to become more generalized and we don't want to have to provide that reinforcement all of the time. That can be a very uh, taxing thing for the classroom team to, to do. And the uh, thinking of being able to eat breakfast or lunch after washing our hands uh, would be the ultimate reinforcer. That's where I would want to zoom out my, my schedule of reinforcement uh, at some point with my students, where then that becomes reinforcing in itself, and we're not having to provide, a, whether it's a squishy ball or an M&M or something like that, to maintain that skill. Um, so that's, really, that's really an important thing, because I think, um, you know, what, what we often hear about, particularly, again, about students with autism, but also about many students that have some significant disabilities, is that they're prompt-dependent. And I know that you and I, Travis, have talked about the fact that sometimes the prompt, wash your hands or even the timer or whatever, uh, that kind of becomes a part of, you know, the stimulus, the, the discriminative stimulus, asking them what to do. So it really is such an important thing to make sure that they are not dependent uh, on, you know, the timer or whatever, because most of us don't use timers in order to wash our hands, uh, and that they also are not dependent on uh, another reinforcer, that they are dependent on, you know, the same kinds of things that, you know, typically developing folks, even if it is just uh, go wash your hands, which, you know, they may continue to need that um, either verbal or visual prompt, uh, but they may, they will not always need to be prompted with the 20 seconds and the, and the, um, 
uh, edible reinforcer or, or the object reinforcer. So you've brought up a really important point about making sure that um, our students um, know that or, or can develop independent skills. And of course, the ultimate reinforcer in many ways is independence. Absolutely. And, and that's a great point, Marianne. What we always want to think of as teachers is how, you know, these proof, pardon me, these supports are necessary right now, but we want to fade them over time. Otherwise, we do create situations where a student might become too prompt dependent. Um, and, you know, for the timer of 20 seconds, for an example, it's a great point. They're not going to have a timer probably at any other sink than mine, but I can also teach them to sing a, a song like Happy Birthday, I believe, twice is sort of right around 20 seconds. So that's a, a skill that they can sort of generate uh, and a support that they can have for themselves. And that's still independent. That's that's where we want to go with it. Um, so let's see, let's go back. And so the, the main caution about this uh, uh, hand-washing example I was going to point to um, was that if I had made a, a big jump in um, of, of thinning that reinforcement at any point, uh, for example, expecting my student to go from uh, five seconds of independent hand-washing uh, to 20 seconds of independent hand washing uh, to receive reinforcement, the skill would just essentially become too hard too quickly, and the process of reinforcement just wouldn't really be effective there. Um, again, that idea of where the rubber meets the road. So, and, and even worse, it may have made the behavior of hand washing become uh, perhaps frustrating and aversive for my student over time if he's no longer getting reinforced for uh, attempting the skill at all. Um, so, right, the, the main idea is to create a momentum for specific skill development using reinforcement. Um, you know, a student learning sight words, to go back to that example, uh, shouldn't be expected to master 100 new words in their first week uh, once reinforcement has been employed for, for that teaching procedure. Um, but over the course of a longer period of time, at a pace, uh, and I think this is very important, that is dictated by the student's continued progress, so we're doing our due diligence and we're, we're looking at that data and making sure that the student continues learning, um, uh, they will be able to master many more sight words or they'll be able to wash their hands for uh, longer durations of time independently. Um, so I guess uh, to sum it up, always make sure to meet the student where they are currently performing uh, and gradually work up from there using reinforcement as a valuable tool. Um, that's that's really a, a good a good caution, and um, I just want to go back and touch just a second on uh, thinking about sight words because that really is one you know a typically developing individual learns those sight words and you know then is able to use them to read all kinds of things. So when we're thinking about our students uh, that that have more significant disabilities, uh, we need to make sure that there is a way that reading those sight words uh, does increase uh, in independence and and possibly quality of life, such as making sure that you can, you know, pick out your favorite cereal on the shelf or, you know, read the movie times or or uh, various things like that. So we we do need to make sure that we build in uh, a good reason to learn those sight words, because, you know, as we know, many of our students, if there's not a really good reason, if there's not good motivation, then they have a really hard time. Absolutely. And that's one where that's one. uh realm where reinforcement can help bolster that motivation, maybe at, at an initial time, but right, re, uh, re, uh, learning the word uh, the as a sight word is not going to be as relevant for a student of mine that needs to like learn the room, or pardon me, blah, learn the word men's restroom, you know, if they go out to eat with their family. Great um, example. Yeah, that, that's much more important. Um, so, and it goes back to that critical need 
to individualize instruction and, and methods of teaching for each and every student that we have. Um, so uh, let's see, I'll wrap up here with one piece of advice about reinforcement. Um, this goes back to when I was, uh, uh, especially when I was in EA for a few years before I began teaching. Um, so when I first began working with students with um, autism spectrum disorder, um, I would typically find myself relying on using a, a single reinforcer for student with, for, for long periods of time, uh, whether it was an M&M or whether it was uh, I, time spent on the iPad or whatever it might be. Um, it, it just was always the same thing. They always earned the same thing no matter what, um, as long as they were correctly performing that behavior. Um, so it, it can seem logical to find the most highly preferred uh, reinforcer known to a student and consistently use that to get the highest rate of results in the least amount of time. Um, but in reality, this uh, certainly comes with some pitfalls. Um, the student can get burned out on receiving the same thing over and over. Um, and depending on the time of day, the reinforcer itself may lose a certain amount of effectiveness. So, you know, like let's go back to the M&M as a reinforcer. That reinforce that M&M, pardon me, may just not have as much value to a student who has just eaten lunch. Um, they might be full and they don't want to work for that M&M uh, in that moment. Um, so we always, you know, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, so the trick here and what's helped my teaching practice a lot over time is to offer a variety of reinforcers to a student and to administer them in a way that makes sense throughout the school day. Uh, so a good rule of thumb, I think, is that, um, you know, a multitude of low to moderately reinforcing things uh, is, is just as effective as using only one reinforcing thing. Um, while at the same time, and avoiding, pardon me, avoiding that burnout uh, that can sort of happen um, that a student might experience by only receiving access to the same thing uh, over and over again. Um, great, so, great caution, yeah. and also a great advertisement for our next podcast, which will focus on uh, preference assessments. So thank you uh, very much, Travis, for that. Absolutely. Um, Russell, how about you? Uh, we're talking about one caution and one piece of advice regarding reinforcement. Okay, well, one caution I would um, touch on. Um, again, I would have talked about edible reinforcers. I, I fell into that rabbit hole um, early in my teaching. Easy um, one just to having do. a variety. Yes, just having a variety, as Travis said, having a variety of reinforcement um, available at various different times. Um, I also think control of the reinforcer is very important. Um, consider, like, the kiddo being potty trained, Um by the use of M&Ms as a reinforcer. If grandma is giving tons of M&Ms at home, you know, the reinforcer loses its, um, its value. So I think working with parents, working with um, your staff and everybody kind of having a clear understanding of what's being reinforced, um, when it's being reinforced and sort of just having that um, operationally identified, um, defined, uh, throughout your staff and um, a good conversation with parents so that parents know what's going on at school uh, really helps with the control of the reinforcer. Oh, that's a great uh, uh, piece of advice because we really have to make sure that everybody is on the same page, particularly as we're working with students with disabilities. Uh, so that is really an excellent piece of advice. And, you know, it's sometimes people disagree for whatever. So it's important to be able to explain to them the whole thing about reinforcement and reward and why we're doing what we're doing. So that is an excellent piece of advice. Okay. And I guess this is also advice too, or just, um, I've always thought that, that a token board and a choice wheel is a good place to start. Um, 
with uh, starting off your reinforcement. It teaches a variety of different skills. It can be used in a variety of different settings. Um, and and it really has um, an interaction between the student and, and the teacher. Um, the student has a choice between what, what they're working for. They get to see, you know, them, uh, they get to see actually, you know, working towards something. And it really helps um, with a variety of different um, tasks or lessons that have steps to it. Um, that's really been something that I've stuck with and it's, it's, um, adapted over time, but something that I've always used is a token board and a choice wheel of some sort. That is a great piece of advice also to think about a way to kind of, uh, allow individuals to earn, uh, what it is that they want to be reinforced by. And that's the whole idea of having a generalized reinforcer like money, uh, and beginning to work toward that. So, uh, that, that is a great uh, piece of advice as well. So you've kind of com- uh, combined advice and caution. Do you have any other caution sure. as far as reinforcement? Um, no, not that I could think of. Great. Well, um, I uh, think that that's about it for our uh, discussion of reinforcement. As you probably have been able to tell, it's a little, maybe a little more complicated uh, than you thought. And I would certainly advise that uh, uh, if you need more information regarding uh, reinforcement and how to use it or rewards and how to use pro- positive behavior supports, including rewards, in your classroom, I would encourage you to contact the school team at the uh, autism programs at the Center for Development and Disability, and I know that the contact information will be attached to this podcast. Thank you so much to Travis and to Russell for joining me today, and thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for having us. 